0: What is up, Crusaders of Crypt Nation? Bryce here, and this is Pizza Mind. Welcome to Crypto 101. You know, Bryce, what's up with all this Crusaders of Crypt Nation talk? A crypto crusader is a progressive individual, smarter, wiser,
1: in control, and free. Crypto crusaders wage guerrilla warfare against greedy corporations and they win. Crypto crusaders start without waiting for inefficient governments. Procrastination is a four letter word, and action is their middle name crypto crusaders never give up control because their wealth stays in their hands not a wasteful government crypto crusaders never ask for permission and they are never enslaved to a bank a crypto crusader generates wealth and takes back the power but never abuses it if you ask an mba or something you look at your college textbooks they'll tell you what you're doing is impossible yet the wave has already started and is not stopping crypto crusaders they generate their own wealth move money freely believe in transparency and are a part of the future crypto crusaders are motivated knowing that they are just one decision away
0: it almost sounds like we're starting a crypto revolution Pete. that's exactly
1: what we're starting crypto 101's mission is to arm people with knowledge and bring crypto to the mainstream and helping us here today with that mission is none other than than Dr. Chris Cleverly. He's the CEO and founder of Kamari, and he's here to talk to us today about the unique marriage between crypto and Africa. Dr. Cleverly, welcome to Crypto 101. Thanks for joining us.
2: It's good to be on Crypto 101.
1: Yeah, we're really excited to, for this segment. It's, it's actually a segment that we've never really had a conversation about. What makes blockchain uh, in Africa really the perfect marriage and this whole philosophy behind banking the unbanked? So we're gonna we're gonna dig into that. Before we get into that, let's just acquaint the audience with yourself.
2: I began doing uh, business and philanthropy in Africa probably around about the two thousand and five, two thousand and six, uh, and we were working very closely back then with a group of people who were trying to do mobile banking, and we launched it uh, in Uganda, similar sort of times as M-Pesa. For a lot of different reasons, we didn't take off quite the the same way as M-Pesa did. But just for an explanation as to what M-Pesa is, M-Pesa is the world's first ever mobile banking. So the reason you now have mobile banking in America, we have it in Europe, is because As far as people in Kenya were concerned, there wasn't any banks for them, so they used to use their mobile phones, they'd store cash on it, and they'd use them for payments, and that became a much more effective way of using of using banking through telcos, because of course banks, if you don't have any branches, aren't particularly useful. But banking remains useful as long as you've got a, a phone or a smartphone. So, you know, just to give you a statistic so you can you can appreciate it, 57% of all mobile banking in the world is still effectively done in Africa, not in South America, not in Asia, not in Europe, you know, not in North America. And um, a lot of that's to do with the fact there isn't a lot of legacy businesses um, in Africa. You know, you don't have, you know, the bells, you don't have, Vodafones and stuff like that, you, you know, you you don't have banks like, you know, a city group that have any real impact or effect, even Facebook doesn't have a lot of effect yet in, in Africa. So it was an opportunity for people to find really unique solutions for unique problems that they had, that when they'd grown to a certain size, it was clear that the rest of the world wanted to follow those as well. Um, so that kind of got me interested in this whole idea about payments and transactions, And a lot of my my work, philanthropy work, was around building infrastructure in Africa. And, you know, we launched a a very big program with the African Development Bank back in 2013. Um, And to launch it, we flew in ACON, John Legend, Mostef. And we launched something called the Africa 50 Fund, which became a $3.5 billion fund building infrastructure in Africa, as a way of creating growth. Because we saw that Africa had reached this kind of tipping point, you know, where, Uh, before it was all flies in the eyes live aid kind of dynamics around charity and then all of a sudden just like it happened in China just like it happened in India there was this other opportunity that could happen so that's what really got me excited and the fact that currencies in Africa you know local currencies you can't take them out of the countries Um, they have no value outside of their countries they're not fungible um, meant that people couldn't trade very easily within the countries, and it meant they were very subject to the interest rates that were imposed on them. And at the time, I was also uh, helping a lot of farmers. I was I was selling fertilizer in in Zambia and Uganda, and uh, it was clear that a lot of farmers couldn't afford that because they couldn't afford the interest rates that were going on there, which could be as high as thirty to forty percent. So we saw, I particularly saw crypto as a way of disintermediating those interest rates so it became much more of a peer-to-peer decentralized way of dealing with finance and you know if i deal with you i'm going to deal with you differently than if a complete stranger on the other side of the planet where i don't know where he's from i don't trust the country he's from i'm going to give him a different interest rate so that sort of peer-to-peer element allows people to to lighten up a little bit and what they're going to charge in terms of interest it becomes less usurious um, so that got me very excited and i was in santa, as santa monica a you know, a couple of years back and there was a, a, a crypto conference there and a very good friend of mine who was a, kind of crypto luminary by the name of Alex Lightman took me down there. And I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, it was to some extent a bit like Comic-Con. You know, there's just people with trestle tables selling their wares and they were all coins and tokens, these new altcoins. Um, but I saw that, that they had the potential to be as strong as any currencies that there were in Africa to allow cross cross-border payments um, allow people to control their interest rates, allow people to transact with each other um, in a way that they could trust the situation. And and all these things were revolutionary in what was considered to be a very corrupt and difficult place to do business. Suddenly we were going to be able to get out of it. So that's what got me into crypto. That's what got me excited about crypto and blockchain and obviously you know, distributed ledger technology in general.
0: Uh, it's really amazing to learn that, you know, mobile banking is such a huge part of African culture already. Uh, who are the current leaders that you're looking to disrupt? And also like, who is really, um, you know, bringing all the internet and smartphone infrastructure to Africa?
2: So I think, I think because, you know, we, when we, we sit in the West, and especially when we sit, you know, if I was sitting where you were right now, probably on the West Coast, you look at, oh my God, I've got a disruptive technology. In, in Africa, it's not a disruptive technology, it's just a technology. There is no situation to disrupt because there is not a legacy of, of technologies that you, you're pulling away from. It's not like that doesn't work well, let's improve it. You have nothing that works. <laughs> so you're in a very, very interesting place where you start from 101 and that's the point you know we start from the very beginning of the of the whole paradigm and you go and say right then what would be the best of thing and that's what happened with mobile banking you know you see the smartphone growth in in africa is is is, is exceptional you know over 50% of the population already has smartphones people don't really realize that there's an opportunity in in africa to avoid um, even tel telcos, telcos have great penetration, but you know what, everyone's on one or two or three, maybe four different telcos choosing and arbitraging between each one to find the greatest value in the phone that they're using. But what's exciting about that is potentially, especially with 5G coming and all the rest of it, potentially we could have mobile mesh networks where local groups of people are actually just meshing their networks with each other. And the whole thing is decentralized because the central stuff never worked. And when you're working with a place where even the central banks don't function, um, a bit like perhaps the Fed and the Bank, of, the Bank of England is now not functioning quite as well as it used to, um, the digital world mean, means that it's, um, it's very front-facing in Africa. You, you, we're looking directly at this digital data-driven world, and the young people in our society are very much connected to it.
0: It's really fascinating that there's an opportunity to start from the ground up with just decentralization I mean, it's very, very interesting to all of us in this space just to see what, I mean, really without regulations and legacy systems in the way, this is really a great thing to see what could be.
1: And yeah, I was just going to say, I love that the the differentiation that you made between disruption and innovation, you know, in in the States and in the Western countries, we always kind of synonymize uh, disruption and innovation, but I think that this point that you made that there is no disruption that blockchain is having in Africa because there's nothing to be disrupted, right? Uh, it's more just this is it's this fertile ground for innovation.
2: Absolutely, look, there's a really big reason why Libra you know, which is essentially Western organizations, Western companies, you know, many of them in the same business. You know, you're sitting there with MasterCard and Visa. You're sitting there with, with, uh, you know, Uber and Lyft. You know, you've got Facebook obviously front-facing the whole thing. But what's fascinating about them is they come out and they say, not that, oh, my God, we're going to disrupt the world. They go, "We're we're going to bank the unbanked. We're going to bank the unbanked. And the reason why they're saying that is because that's where the regulation doesn't exist that's they're the people who have been forgotten there's no one standing there saying oh you're eating my lunch they're gonna they're sitting there going okay well okay well you know that's kind of like transport it seems like a good thing to do but in fact what they're doing is they're aggregating the numbers of one billion people who've never had access to basic utilities basic banking basic education opportunities basic basic health opportunities and once you're able to actually start from the scratch up from the with from the ground up with those guys you know, you're not scratching around anymore, trying to find a living amongst all the other big players. You now got to, you know, you got open sea.
1: Yeah. You know, I I heard, you know, one of my buddies recently took a trip to Africa and he was mentioning that he, he noticed people were trading smartphone minutes and data for like food. Is that like a big trend that is happening in Africa that people actually use minutes and stuff?
2: Absolutely. And, 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 that really, you know, there's two really big things that come out of that. It's exciting. It's good to be with a, with a knowledgeable bunch of guys. The, the two things that are really interesting about that is this, is that, you know, one is what is value? which is really what the big question of crypto was really all trying to answer is, you know, what is value? How do we store it? How do we move it? How do we make it you know, accepted by many different people? How do we transact with it and connect with it? So first question, what is value? And in, in Africa, in, in the way that you've just described, that question has been asked, which is if I believe in the value of these minutes on, on this card here, then that is value. If I can take that, to some obscure place in the middle of nowhere and rather than carrying around dirty big chunks of money where I might get mugged, I might get killed, I might get robbed, but instead of able to take these few cards, hide them down my sock and I can travel out the country and get some cows, that is what value is, right? So that's a very sort of very interesting way of actually stuff for us as, as people to see how value can change. That's number one. Number two, um, I experienced that very much, you know, when we were in the, the fertilized business um, in Uganda and people in Kampala, which is the capital city, would go up to, the, you know, the north towards Juba in South Sudan, or they'd go up to, you know, the, the by the the lakes where the oils now being discovered near Gulu and places like that. And that's how they would move money, because that was a trusted and accepted form. And that also became a very important form of moving money in Zimbabwe which is now synonymous with ridiculous BTC prices. You know, Bitcoin can fluctuate above the market level of by 30% according to what's happening on the ground because people are looking for trusted stores of value. And, the, you know, this breaks down the concept, you know, that dirty money, big piles of cash, um, these sort of inflated fiat's that are just sort of as much made up as anything else are true stores of value. You know, there, there will be other... Other trends that will happen. So Africa is much more open to believing in in things like that because you know that they have trouble. Even South Africa, an incredibly powerful country like South Africa in terms of African terms, it's very hard to move the rand, which is the currency in South Africa, outside of Africa, outside of South Africa. So people are always looking for different ways in which they can move money.
0: So let's say you've got a great system here. Africa's using your mobile app, and everyone's happy. Is this distributed banking system something that could ever work as an alternative in the West where banks are really under siege right now and people are trusting our existing institutions less and less every day?
2: You know, I, th- I think, you know, you've really hit on it. It's it's kind of, kind of interesting the way that Libra in particular, I think, c- can have that kind of effect where you're seeing what has potentially dis- certainly been described in the past as a private corporation, which is the Federal Reserve potentially being attacked by a, another set of private organizations and corporations, which would be Libra. And they're having a scrap over it. Who owns money? And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out and what that means. But outside of that, it's sort of, Digs into the fiction of what is money and who owns money and why it should be centralised or otherwise. And as soon as that fiction's in some ways shattered, it's all based on belief, right? That's why we call it fiat. So as soon as that belief is actually shattered in any other way, everything else becomes possible. And in a place where you know that that belief in money is weak anyway, you know you're in Zimbabwe, and at the beginning of the week you could buy an egg, and at the end of the week you, you can't even buy, you know, uh, it, 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 you know the the box of the egg was in. So you know where you already struggle to believe in the value of money then then there's a much more openness to accept other stories and other ways of looking at value and how that can be stored and other ways of creating trust so something where there's a finite number an actual finite number that's ever going to be printed minted of something becomes kind of interesting. Something that um, actually has an asset base, which let's face it, is the opposite of that, actually has an asset base, which has a use for it. it. becomes interesting because people can understand that in terms of value much more easily than somebody at the middle of the table, when you're sitting on the outside of the table, told you it's worth something. So we are at this very interesting crossroads and I think Africa is going to be pivotal in that because that's where you're going to be able to see groups of people aggregate huge numbers to support that. You know, so, you know, suddenly you've got, you know, this whole game is about eyeballs, right? So if there's a billion people being affected by something, then that's the new billion. And that can happen in Africa in a way that's not going to happen.
3: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.
2: happen in north america
1: let's talk specifically about the work that kamari is accomplishing in africa i know you guys are focused on the uh, cross-border payments and remittances and gaming so so where exactly are you guys uh positioning your
2: value so you know what really interested me in particular not so much the game the game is very key but it was really about lotteries if you look at lotteries there's certain particular things that are relevant to blockchain one is sortition which is the ability to, to you know, uh, pick things at random, you know, and these things hold very closely with the blockchain, they hold with the nature of democracy, and they hold very closely with the nature of lottery itself. Lotteries, in certainly in the UK, are synonymous with building much of the things we admire and we like about this city. You know, they paid for our Olympics, it paid for some of our bridges, it pays for our museums, and it can pay for good works and traditionally has done that. And in that way, it acts as a sort of voluntary taxation by people in which they wish to contribute to things that affect their countries. In, in Africa, you know, the two fifths compared to the rest of the world of tax is actually collected, which is a lot of the reason why, you know, a lot of the public elements of, of civil society are not paid for in Africa and a lot of the utilities aren't covered. So the lottery has the opportunity to do that. It has another thing as well, which is very exciting for us as well at Kamari, and that it has the opportunity to bring people together. So across borders, you know, Africa has very few inter trade between the different countries um i think we're something like 10 20 percent of compared to everywhere else in terms of the way that African countries trade with each other if you try and fly into Africa you fly it doesn't matter whether you're flying into Ghana or you're flying into Kamp- Kampala or in Uganda or you're Nairobi or wherever you try and fly from Nairobi to Ghana you're gonna to have to probably fly back out to come back in because it's not connected on the basis of making things work within its structure. It's about taking things out so that they can be sold outside of the country, outside of the continent, rather. What what's we see is the opportunity at, at, at um, Kamari. The opportunity at Kamari is that we. Have the, have the ability to create points of sale, because that's what happens with lotteries. You go into any corner store, they're selling lottery tickets. Um, we create points of sale both on physical, in that, that sort of environment I've just described, but also on mobile phones. Suddenly people are connected. They're connected in a decentralized way, in which they're making income on a decentralized way, but at the same time, they have opportunity on a decentralized way. And they're starting to connect and understand how this whole currency, this whole store of value, this whole story that we're now going into, which is the end of fiat and the end of banks per se, they get an opportunity to see how they can transact and connect together on their own basis. And you know, I'm seeing it partly as a stalking horse for other payment mechanisms, and other remittances that can come back and forth from outside the continent, inside the continent. But I think it's really about creating a language between people, peer to peer, that they can really start to experience it. Because the problem, I think, it's just personal view. The problem with cryptocurrency at the moment is the lack of users. So if we can create something that creates a mass amount of users in a way in which they can benefit on a mass way, then it starts to open up the door for, you know, the reasons why you came into this and I came into this.
0: I had always looked at lotteries as kind of a scam that preys on the dreams of poor people, but I never realized until you mentioned it now that it actually is like a voluntary tax system and is actually used to drive a lot of funding for infrastructure and development projects. Uh, That's really fascinating. So thank you for pointing that part out of it. And I think I'm actually going to go buy some lottery tickets from now on just to help
2: uh, the world around me. I don't even care about winning anymore. <laughs> That's brilliant. And, you know, because it's kind of interesting because, you know, I looked at the, but uh, we looked at a lot of lotteries. We looked at the Belgian lottery and, you know, what was clear with that one is that, you know, they they, they raised $300 million to some time back to, to, to help uh, food security in Africa. And, you know, these are kind of stories that keep them coming out. And I think if we, you know, you've got to take business, in different ways but I think when business can meet with philanthropy when you can you can do good work and still make money at it that's what drives things faster you know charities happen for a long time in Africa and you know with the greatest respect to the really great people who put time into it it hasn't worked Um, what really works is people have been paid properly for things that they do if gold has value pay a good price if cobalt has good value pay a good price if iron has good value pay a good price you know those things actually create value on the ground Um, the only way people actually start to be able to do that is by by connecting and by working together to, to, to create situations where they can actually turn around and say, look, this is the fair price. Um, and also where, you know, the consumer economy can develop I- I exceptionally as well, where land rights can suddenly be, emerge. Land rights is one of the most fascinating things right now about blockchain. You know, it's the first time in Africa where people are actually able to register what they really own. And if you if you can put those things down on 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 an electric screen, you can borrow against it. And if you can borrow against it in a fair interest rate, because you're getting peer to peer interest rates, then actually you have something that's very equivalent. what, you know, people in England and people in America and France and everywhere else, actually, that's how they build their families. They build their families by having mortgages and by, you know, being able to afford school fees because they pay them over a period of time, being able to afford a car because they pay it over a period of time and being able to invest in their businesses through debt. So that opens things up. You know and that that's kind of what the opportunity is and i think we're just part of that opportunity we're just cog in that opportunity but i think we're one of those ones that's going to help with distribution so that happens
1: yeah i really love that point that you make right there about like that's how people are building families by credit and you know i think you know as bad of a reputation as the fed and all the central banks and all these lenders of last resorts or whatever you know everybody gets a bad rep because they they give out so much credit but i mean if it wasn't for credit you know, nobody would have anything. You know, the world wouldn't be what it is today. We wouldn't have education and cars and all like the, these things that you said. That you know, it,
2: you need credit. You know, we've got to give credit where credit's due. And in this, and in this particular instance, what it is, you know, fair price credit based on real asset backed stuff is good. Unfairly priced price credit based on illusion and delusion is probably bad. And, and that's obvious, you know? And as long as we can start coming back to where, you know, the the, the abarter type system and a trust type system, and we're all in it together type system, you know, the sooner we get to those kind of places, then people can make things happen for each other.
1: Yeah, fascinating. If there was one macro trend or one macro policy that was unfolding, uh, in the world, whether it's globally dovish inf- uh, interest rates from the central banks or whether it's just corrupt governments, um, you know what's the one macro trend that you're seeing that's really driving adoption for crypto um specifically in
2: Africa? I think um the trend now that comes around the fact that quantitative easing failed. You know we thought we could print more money and somehow it would be better. Um, we haven't actually come to the conclusion that it is better, but we're so afraid of what's happening that we're deciding, therefore, to print more money. And I think that that is, is now getting to such a, an exceptional stage now that, that those people who are at the center of it and have benefited from that in the past are them are themselves scared now. And they're the ones now pushing for projects like Libra. They're the ones now pushing things onto IBM blockchain-type systems and, and looking for something that looked a bit like what they were used to before as they're sort of grappling around for something that could possibly be real. Because people are very afraid, I think, now, even though they're privately afraid and they don't want to scare everyone, I think they're now privately afraid that the game is up and they need to make sure that they've in some way hedged their position. And that natural hedge has to be in some way... You know, either a store of value based on an asset, okay, an altcoin, or it's on our favorite, Bitcoin.
0: So you mentioned several times before that there really are no legacy systems that are established that you need to work around or disrupt, but that's really hard to wrap our head on. Let's say you need, you want to uh, enter your business into a new country, I mean, is there even a business license you need to fill out? Is there any kind of regulatory board or government that you need to get approval from? Or do you literally just walk in and start advertising directly to the people with no resistance whatsoever?
2: No, I mean, you know, the, the, like like everywhere, there's there's, there's hurdles, but the, the hurdles are sometimes different. The big hurdle is always central government and um, those people who uh, survive and live around that because the system's been created to support those centralized governments Having said that, because there is a lot of areas where blockchains needed by the government to actually to actually streamline their own systems, some of the biggest deals are going to be done direct with that government and quickly. You know, they're looking for solutions that help them do their job in the country and also reduce corruption as well. Although sometimes in some countries, you know, you'll be up against that very corruption that you're trying to solve the problem of. So the biggest issue with doing business in, in, in Africa is, is, is always how do you deal with government? How do you deal with um, existing ways of dealing with things the same as everywhere else in the world? The difference is is you're not going to come up against a multinational that says you just can't and he's going to want come on to keep a monopoly and just won't you do it. If you've got something that's effective, there is a fair chance that you're going to be able to come in on the ground level. Now, we did see with the expansion of uh, M-PES, which I mentioned earlier, which was the, the mobile banking system, we did see a lot of banks gang together to prevent that expanding in other countries in Africa because they were terrified that they were losing their their opportunity to get business. But after a while, people kind of realized that they weren't really fighting over anything. There was a, they were only banking 3 4% of the whole population anyway. So they were not effective. They weren't doing their problem their jobs effectively. Just like the banks in the United States and in Europe are starting to be to realize, and people are seeing it in them, that they're not doing their jobs effectively. So if you're a, a, a company with a small number of people or a sole trader, you know, you try and move money around now. You try and get paid on time. You try and get debt from a bank. You know, you, you it's ridiculous the amount of KYC, AML you now have to go through. You know, unless you're working with one of the digital banks um, in the UK, that would be like Monzo or Revolut. Um then it's very very hard to do business in most places in Western Europe now. It's very it's getting becoming harder and harder to set up companies. Um, so what turned out to be quite an effective system for capitalist growth is now decreasing as an effective system. And so that's why the the, the, the banks are going to struggle to keep it up with 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 um, the digital alternatives.
1: Wow. Love it. Awesome. So I guess uh, as we as we wrap up, we want to just get some of your uh, your opinions. You've been in the space for a long time. And, you know, we want to know if, if this is the first podcast that one of our audience members is listening to. Um, what would be like your one word of advice to that? Maybe, you know, people come on the show and they say, you know, protect your private keys or, you know, don't keep your coins on exchanges. What would you say?
2: Innovate. Would be the one thing, you know, I think it's all very good for everyone to sit down and see how they can use crypto, how they're going to trade crypto, um, how they're going to make, you know, that to the moon jump. But the real thing that's really, really needed right now, the thing that's needed most right now is that people actually work out how they can use what's happening to better everyone in the world, you know, because if there isn't a user case for this, the trading is a waste of time
1: so besides your company what is one company in the space that you believe is having the greatest impact
2: i think in terms of what is the you know the crypto blockchain company that's um there's two probably but but the one that really i want to talk about is you know that's making the biggest impact even if they never allowed to ever start their business even if the Fed and the regulated organisations all close them down, even if they're persuaded to change their business model so much it's it, it, not recognisable. The impact that Libra has had in this market cannot, in any way, be underestimated. It's phenomenal, and the way that it, people have just suddenly realised that two point two billion users <laughs> might suddenly appear out of nowhere using digital currency, but the effect that that's having, you know, which is thrilling, you know, across the whole the whole piece. Um, and it's the other the other prize probably goes to another you know megalith from the, the from the old age it's probably IBM and IBM's effect on um, supply chain the supply chain is never going to be the same again so I'd said that those things are, are huge but I, I don't think the impact you know the impact of Libra's not even begun yet but just the fact that there's a bunch of guys who own businesses that are uh, household names around the world aggregate bigger marketing spend than any nation on the planet and have more people signing up to them on a daily basis than any nation on the planet is not just going to impact cryptocurrency and what currencies are they actually impacts impacts on what a nation is and what countries are and we don't really know what that all means yet so it would be interesting to see how that plays out
1: that that last little bit actually gave me goosebumps because we're we are d- redefining what a nation and what borders are, right? Absolutely, in
2: the, in the, in every sense. And you know, it, it, maybe it's the worst thing we've ever done is giving our data and our currency to a new oligarchy. But then, kind of, it was kind of there anyway. It was worse before, and but maybe there's just this little slither of hope, this little small line of possibility that exists between the two things, where we might just scrape out with a decentralized world
1: amazing thank you so much for your time today and for all your insight that you shared with us uh as always this is crypto 101 we very much enjoyed having you thank
2: you and really enjoyed it